AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. You can rent a car, a house, even that little black party dress. So why not rent the stuff you need for your home too? The place to do it is Aaron's. Choose from thousands of new products from the brands you love. Online or in store. Pick a payment plan that fits your budget and pay a little at a time until it's yours forever. But if life changes, you can return it anytime or even upgrade it with something new. Rent what you need. It's better at errands. Approval not guarantee. Restrictions apply. See store for details. All-inclusive vacations make life easy with endless eats, bottomless drinks, and never-ending fun. So booking an all-inclusive vacation should be easy too, right? That's where Apple Vacations comes in. Book your all-inclusive getaway with Apple Vacations and receive exclusive perks at select resorts. You'll find the best deals to Hyatt, Zalara, Riviera Maya in Mexico and enjoy a selection of exclusive nonstop vacation flights. Turn on easy mode at applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. Visit applevacations.com or call your local travel advisor to get started. The Volume Charles Darwin. The Nerds is where it's at. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brever and alongside me is Logan Camden. And what a game one we just saw to Lakers Warriors. One of the most hyped up second round series in a long time. Lived up to the hype in its first edition. So Lakers almost gave it away late, but end up coming out with the win. What was your biggest takeaway from this, Logan? Well, Carson, I think we have to start with the absolute physical advantage that the Lakers have and imposed on the Golden State Warriors tonight. Uh, I thought this was an absolute Anthony Davis masterclass, taking away the paint, uh, just dominating on the interior. 30 points, 23 boards, 4 blocks, and this is on both sides of the ball. He has a really tough matchup in this series in Kevin Looney, and shout out uh, Looney for what he did on the glass tonight. Another 20-board game. But... The Warriors just don't have an answer for him on either side of the ball. On offense, he got what he wanted. There's just not a guy who's really physical and athletic enough to take him out. Uh, I think Draymond is probably the best offering uh, that the Warriors have for him moving forward in this series, but uh, it's going to be tough. I mean, the Warriors are just outsized, out-athletic, and they got out-physical tonight. Uh, On the defensive side, Anthony Davis, four blocks. Uh, The Lakers just completely take the pain away. Uh, They have 10 blocks in this game. Just 11% of the shots uh, that the Warriors took came at the rim. That's in the first percentile of teams in these playoffs. Um, That's 12 attempts at the rim. They just convert 58% of them. Again, that's in the 11th percentile of teams in these playoffs. They completely took the rim away from the dubs in this game. And I think that's something that we're going to see continue in this series for a multitude of reasons. One, all the long-rangey defenders that they have, the Vandos, the Anthony Davises, the LeBron James, the Hachimuras, you know, even if they turn to Wenyan Gabriel, that's still a physical advantage over most of these dubs. 
And then you couple that with how the Lakers are playing the Warriors' non-shooters when they're on the floor. Draymond Green, uh, Jamichael Green, who Jamichael Green is a shooter, but they were playing off of him like he wasn't one. Uh, Draymond, Jamichael, um, Gary Payton II, just completely sagging off of these guys and opting to let them shoot to just eliminate the paint from Golden State. And, I mean, I thought they did this exceptionally well. Even on the backdoor cuts that we saw, Jamichael Green, Kevin Looney, Draymond Green, all had great dots to the corner uh, on the baseline of guys cutting. And because they're not respecting those guys at the top of the key and letting them get those passes, there's an extra help side guy to block those shots and take away that side of the rim too. So basically for the entirety of this series, Carson, I think it's going to be tough for the Warriors to get any reliable interior offense. And on the other side of the ball, it's going to be easy for the Lakers to generate that offense. Not because the Warriors don't have good interior defenders. Looney and Draymond are as solid as they come. But again, you've got Anthony Davis on the low block. You've got a lot of guys who get to the rim, and that's how the Lakers get their points. They attack downhill. They get good shot quality. And I thought that was really represented in the free throw discrepancy that we saw. The Lakers shoot 29 free throws. The Dubs just shoot six. I think these are all trends that we see uh, to continue in this series. Now, I was really disappointed in the lack of effort from Los Angeles uh, at certain points in this game. Just switching into neutral, man, taking their foot off of the gas and letting the Warriors creep back into this game. I thought nothing exemplified that more uh, in this game than Andrew Wiggins grabbing, I think, two and almost three straight offensive boards where the Warriors get really good looks, too. Um, wide open threes. I mean, that it is inherently what's going to happen off of an offensive rebound. The defense is in disarray. I need to see the Lakers. That was the one part, I think, in this game that I was disappointed with in the Lakers because I was like, when they were up 10 um, and continued to grow the lead, I was like, uh-oh, you know, we're in trouble. If the Lakers keep this, this uh, lead could get even bigger. They could run away with this thing. I don't know if that's something that we're going to see the Lakers do in this series. They have consistently taken their foot off of the gas when they get up in games, and that is translated to a lack of effort and letting teams get back into this game. I mean, that run at the Warriors uh, at the end was insane, and that's something that is liable to happen when the Lakers on one end are taking bad, low-quality shots early in the shot clock from long range and at the rim. That leads to easy outlet passes. And again, against a Warriors team that can knock it down from anywhere on the court that is great in transition on offense against a bad Lakers team uh, in transition defense. And when you're not trying, that is something that is liable to happen in this series at any given moment if the Lakers take their foot off of the gas. That was the one spot I was disappointed in the Lakers in. But for the most part, uh, a dominant, dominant physical uh, just a forceful game from the Lakers, and I think that physical advantage is going to continue to show uh, throughout this series. You laid out the vintage upside and downside of this Lakers team. This would have been the steal of all steals if the Dubs had won this game because they were soundly outplayed for 44 minutes. And to get back to a point where this is a tie game, I thought was a shocking display by the Lakers. But I do think... The reason that I saw this as such a tough matchup for the Warriors before the playoffs and the primary reason that I still picked the Lakers to win this series when we just did our predictions a couple days ago is because of what you laid out. That massive physical size advantage and we see it on both sides of the ball completely. And I don't know that things are going to get easier for the dubs in terms of scoring inside. I think their best 
solution to creating more quality shots overall has to be running more Steph pick and roll at AD's man. Because sure, AD is a good big in space. He can capably contest Steph. But if you're hedging hard, now you have Looney or Dre off the short roll. At the very least, you're pulling AD away from the rim. And yeah, if you do still have another non-shooter out there, not involved in the pick and roll, Dre or Looney, you can have another guy planted in the paint. If it's Vanderbilt, if it's LeBron, those guys are good secondary rim protectors, but they're not Anthony Davis, who is generationally great and has put on one of the best defensive postseasons so far that I can think of. So we saw them turn to more of Steph handling the ball late in this game, and we saw it spark that run along with those Lakers lapses. I think you have to turn to that more with the dedication that the Lakers are giving him off the ball with, as you mentioned, leaving the non-shooters, Vando with his length and with his constant effort, they just weren't able to get Steph quality looks for a majority of this game. It's impressive that he ended up with 27. And on the other side of the ball, the Lakers were getting exactly what they wanted for a vast majority of this game. And they just know how to find their way to the paint top to bottom. AD, of course, is the dominant finishing force if it's off the roll, off offensive rebounds, if it's his skilled shot-making game out of the post. That's where he's going to do his work. But their guards are all downhill first players too. D'Lo, with his controlled pace, tonight it was some of the cutting away from the ball too, is going to manufacture quality looks in the paint. Of course, he was great from mid-range to pull-up jump shooting, but he's going to get into that paint a lot. Austin Reeves, with his ability to trap you on his back, get to that floater range, draw fouls. They're bigger ball handlers who use their bodies well to get to their spots. Dennis Schroeder, with his quickness, had a pretty explosive game tonight. And if he hadn't just settled for a few mid-range pull-ups, could have been extremely efficient. Vando, as a like cutter, dunker spot guy. Rui Hachimura, as a bigger physical wing four. Like, they're just bigger. They're more downhill. They're more paint-oriented across the board. And I felt that they exploited that advantage for the entirety of this game. And then when you combine that with insane length, insane rim protection defensively and good perimeter personnel as well. This team has a really high two-way ceiling and a big advantage there. And the only guy who didn't really exploit that size, physicality, downhill thing as consistently as we would have hoped for is yet again LeBron James Logan. And I do think that is an X factor in this series because you and I have sort of been of the mindset that, yeah, LeBron's cruising. He's relying on his jumper, the side pick and roll. He's not commanding the game because against the Memphis Grizzlies, he didn't really need to. And in this game, for the most part, he didn't need to. His supporting cast stepped up and dominated on both ends of the floor. But I would like to see him kick into that gear, especially given that he's coming off of this foot injury because this is a spot where, all right, once you've blown the lead, can we get a real quality look at the rim? LeBron, and obviously the last one, he winds down the clock and settles for the pull-up three. But I would just like to see the real LeBron James. Because although I do believe in the Lakers' secondary creation of D'Lo and Reeves and Schroeder, those guys were all pretty good tonight. And they're not all extremely consistent. I would say Reeves is the only one who is pretty reliable night to night. D'Lo will go with his tough shot, making Schroeder sometimes doesn't even get a ton of minutes. So 
I think we're going to need to see that commanding the game, downhill LeBron, not relying on his jumper so heavily, which has been totally off for majority of these playoffs and where he had a career worst season in the regular season from deep down at 30%. Got to see better LeBron because although the Lakers looked convincingly better in this in this game, I don't know how reliable the formula is without superstar LeBron. Well, then let me ask you this, Carson. At any point in this series, do you think we're going to need to see LeBron kick into that higher gear and uh, see superstar LeBron? I lean towards saying yes, even though this was, I don't want to say an outlier shooting game for the Warriors because it's the dubs, but man, they shot the hell out of the ball. I mean, 21 threes, 40% from deep in this one that was the only thing that kept them competitive and as good as the Lakers looked everybody else on both sides of the ball it's hard for me to believe that a Steph Curry led team with the supporting pieces that we just saw win a title doesn't at least push the Lakers to the brink where they're gonna need that level of LeBron in a couple of games I think the Lakers are better I think they showed in this game that they are better but I don't know that they are better by the margin to where this version of LeBron is going to cut it in a best-of-seven series. 100%, and I think that, one, we need to see LeBron exert himself on the game more in a control fashion, and what I mean by that is just simply having the ball in his hands more, Mm -hmm. initiating out of pick and roll, just doing more physically with the actual ball in his hands because – I don't know if you saw it tonight, too. I mean, the Warriors were content with letting LeBron settle for that jump shot. When they saw LeBron go up for it, they said, oh, okay. And it did work. He had a couple of mid-range jumpers. He had a couple of step backs. Carson, I believe LeBron is shooting 6 of 41 from deep in these playoffs. That's an abysmal 14.6%. Like, yeah, I'm letting that guy shoot. I'm going to be honest with you. If he's pulling up... I am letting LeBron shoot. Uh, So those are the two stylistical things I think we need to see LeBron do differently. One, just have the ball in his hands more and actually control the game because you're right. I don't know how night-to-night, how consistent uh, D'Angelo Russell is going to be with that mid-range jumper. I don't know how consistently we're going to see Dennis Schroeder get downhill and be this effective at drawing fouls and converting layups. And two... I don't know, man. I mean, at this point, a LeBron three-pointer is just not a valuable shot on offense unless it's in the flow and in the catch-and-shoot stage. I would like to see LeBron just, if you're going to shoot that three and it's early in the shot clock, back your man down, go into the paint, just draw a little bit of attention and kick back out. Like, LeBron is shooting 14.6% from behind the arc. A LeBron three is just not a good shot right now. Uh, He's at a career low as a jump shooter. He was one of the five least efficient jump shooters in all of basketball. And guys, you aren't going to like this if you're a LeBron fan. He was on that list with guys like Dylan Brooks. I mean, that's not the company that you want to be holding with in terms of jump shooting. So if LeBron is going to that, I mean, just do something differently. Go to the rack, go to the low block where you're going to be more effective and it's going to lead to a higher quality shot on offense. Um, I'm glad they didn't need him tonight. But I think you're right. I I agree with you, too. I think that at some point, 
you know, we even saw it in the Memphis series down the stretch late in games where he had to crank it up a notch and get downhill and do work. I want to see him not only do that more consistently because I think they're going to need that against Golden State at some point in this series. I want to see him rev into form because when you're going to be asked to do that on a larger stage, if that's in the Western Conference Finals or the NBA Finals, he's just going to be ready for it. He's going to be in game shape, in full LeBron beast mode king shape where he's ready to take over like that. And inevitably, we are going to need to see the king take over for the Lakers to reach their peak and win this chip. It's in some ways a good sign that you win a game where you shoot 24% from deep and where LeBron isn't very good. At the same time, when you shot 31% from deep last series, it was a weakness. LeBron's jumper was way off, and he did not assert himself as you expect him to. You wonder how much of that is who you are, and that's why I'm like, how much of this is a health thing? Because, of course, LeBron is prone to coasting, but to this extent, I'm just starting to become a bit more concerned than I was last series. And I know that there are people who will defend LeBron no matter what and say that he's been playing well. And my thought to that is just, if you are content with LeBron's performance, then you have no idea how good LeBron James has been at basketball for the entirety of his career. Like, if you want to concede, well, I just don't think he's giving it a full effort. That's one thing. But he certainly has not been producing at the level that I expected, but nevertheless, the Lakers looked really good, and I thought this was a convincing and very impressive win. Let's talk about the other game that we saw tonight, Logan. Heat Knicks, no Jimmy Butler, Julius Randle returns, and New York ekes this one out. What was your biggest takeaway? Ekes this one out is right, Carson. Uh, I, I mean, I thought this was an Eric Spolstra masterclass. Um the way they defended, the way their offense moved. And I'm finally putting the pieces together, Carson. While hot shooting at the level that we saw last series against Milwaukee isn't sustainable, what is sustainable is the shot quality that you can create when you have the caliber of shooters that the Miami Heat have and the identity that they have on offense. Because I pointed to that and I said, this is not, we're not going to see them shoot 40% from deep this series. We're not going to see all these guys, you know, have burners on them this entire time. But the Miami pick and roll is something that is very deadly and is going to consistently create high quality shots no matter what. You noted on our last show, and this is something that I think more teams in the playoffs need to turn to, including New York, when you're struggling. The Miami Heat run the highest frequency of pick and roll in these playoffs, 31 possessions per game. And it's something that you need to lead into and consistently can create good offense from when you have the caliber of shooters that they have, even without Jimmy Butler. Struess, D-Rob, Gabe Vincent, Caleb Martin, all of these guys as pick-and-roll ball handlers with K-Love screening, that guy is going to drop off. Julius Randle, whoever's defending in the pick-and-roll. And once that guy drops off, it's a good shot. It's a good shot, like point blank. They may not shoot 40% every series. They may not shoot 40% every game. But when that guy consistently drops, that's a good shot every single possession. And we saw that consistently. That's what kept the Miami Heat in this basketball game is good ball movement, a lot of stuff off ball, a lot of off screens off ball, and a lot of pick and roll on ball when the clock, uh, when the shot clock got low in the possession, guys drop off one foot, 
boom. And it's a good shot every single time down. And so that's something that I think that the New York Knicks need to turn to more often. The Heat turned into a 2-3 zone. And for the entirety of the second quarter, because this was an awesome first quarter from the New York Knicks, R.J. Barrett came out getting downhill, getting to the rack, getting free throws. Julius Randle was dissecting double teams really well. And I'm going, oh, man, we might be in for a really good Knicks basketball game today. Then the Heat switched stuff up, and they switched to that 2-3 zone, and we saw the Miami Heat, uh, we, excuse me, we saw the New York Knicks settle for a lot of threes in this game, and that's not where the Knicks offense eats. That's what the Miami Heat want them to do, and that's what the 2-3 zone sets up for them. So what do the Knicks need to do? I think they need to turn to the pick and roll more often. They ran the 11th most pick and roll in the regular season, 20 possessions a game, and in the playoffs, they run the second lowest pick and roll among remaining teams, 16 possessions a night. That's four less a night. And for the Knicks, you just cannot stagnate. You cannot settle for threes. That is not your bread and butter. That is not your offense. You are playing in to the Miami Heat's hand because they are one of the best transition defenses in basketball. They are one of the best transition offenses in basketball. The best in these playoffs. Nobody turns bad uh, offense on the other end into easy offense on the other end like the Miami Heat do. You have two guys who are really good pick-and-roll ball handlers. And I know that we haven't seen them dominate in these playoffs out of the pick-and-roll. Brunson was 82nd percentile in the regular season. Emmanuel quickly was 78th percentile in the regular season. And the reason that they haven't flourished as much is because you're not doing it. Turn to the pick-and-roll, especially when they go to this 2-3 zone, and let them get downhill, let them get the uh, defense at least in rotation a little bit and see what you can set up. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I thought... This is a very on-the-margins game, Carson. Honestly, I am a lot closer to liking the Miami Heat in this series because I think consistently they are going to create good shot quality. Like I said, dude, I don't expect them to shoot the absolute lights out every night, but if the Knicks are not going to get over these screens and fight hard and contest these shots and get up in the mouths of these shooters, they are going to have good three looks at threes all series long. And honestly... With how slim the margins were in this game, I thought the distinction that won the Knicks this game was their domination on the glass once again, them winning that battle. That is something that is going to be key to the Knicks winning basketball games throughout these playoffs. And Jalen Brunson absolutely shooting the lights out and taking over this game. Um, Frankly, I'm really impressed with what the Miami Heat were able to do adjustment-wise without Jimmy Butler, and I'm really disappointed that this game was this close for this long without Jimmy on the floor. The Knicks should have ran away with this game, and they didn't because of the Miami Heat culture, Eric Spolster's adjustments, and yeah, I mean, that's it, man. That's it, point blank. Spo is, I think, without a doubt, the best coach in the NBA right now and a top 10 coach of all time. Like, the Miami Heat have never for a moment, not been a competitive basketball team under him, and they have always overachieved their talent. And I think that that'll, to some extent, get lost just because he started with the most talented team in the NBA. But every year since, man, I mean, the finals run, the conference finals run last year. Of course, we give a ton of credit to Jimmy Butler, but the Heat's ability to consistently execute Spo deserves so much credit for, and of course, that predates Jimmy. I mean, we saw them make the playoffs with Josh Richardson as probably their best player, like that year that they had the insane post-All-Star break stretch, and I thought they made everything hard on the Knicks in this game. As you said, they made the Knicks beat them with good decision-making and shooting, which in a lot of situations can be their weaknesses, and down to the last possession, 
when it's just a spot of, okay, we're in a foul spot and they're just swarming the ball. They're making it difficult on the Knicks ball handlers to, you know, safely maintain possession. And they've been so disciplined with the ball themselves. They have 14 turnovers through two games, Logan. And I have been super impressed with their shot quality, given the level of offensive creation you would expect from this court. But I do want to give credit to the Knicks for stepping up. And I do think that this game did come down to the difference in shot creation in the fourth quarter. We had a lull from the Heat, three-plus minutes of no scoring. That was what allowed the Knicks to get back into this. And I thought we had good Julius Randle in this game. He came out aggressive, using his physical advantages as a driver. Of course, came out pretty nails as a pull-up jump shooter, loves his step back so much, and wasn't consistently great there. But I also thought at the end of this game, Against that zone, he wasn't necessarily the quickest to read the doubles, but he created that open look from three for Josh Hart, which he nailed, and then he anticipated the double beautifully and created that last really good look from three for the Knicks. So I think you give credit to him. I think you give credit to Jalen Brunson for just a big-time jump-shooting performance after he was so off there in game one. He goes 6 of 10 from deep in this one, and again, Second half was dynamic, was able to get into the lane a bit, but was able to really do it as a pull-up jump shooter and a couple spots, a catch-and-shooter. And then Josh Hart is just a hero, man. Josh Hart is a championship basketball player. He is the kind of guy who wins you a championship. Not this Knicks team. They're not good enough, but somebody somewhere down the line, Josh Hart could win a championship. And this was just another game that was completely emblematic of that. He finishes with 14, 11, and 9, obviously makes a couple of big shots. But overall, his cutting was awesome, his constant movement without the ball, against the zone, and his playmaking was fantastic. From the middle of the floor, finding open shooters. If he was catching the ball in the corner, swinging to the open man, kicking out as a driver, like, he just created good look after good look, and... Got the offensive board off his own miss, up 104-100. He missed the putback, but Randall was able to get a pretty much uncontested look at it, draw a foul, and that was sort of the ball game. So he has just had so many moments like that already. I mean, I can think of four standout games out of the seven that they've played from Josh Hart, and I got to say, I've always loved him, but I didn't, like immediately love the Cam Reddish in a first move for him just because I have a little bit too sweet of a spot in my heart for Cam Reddish and I wasn't sure that the Knicks were in a like push us over the edge kind of spot to where Josh Hart is the guy who does that but he's been phenomenal and he has won them playoff basketball games and then RJ shot the hell out of the ball so bottom line the Knicks shooting 40% from deep is not sustainable given the caliber of shooting that we've seen from them overall. Of course, game one was abnormally bad. Game two was abnormally good, but it was what they needed in this game. And I think the level of creation offensively that we saw bringing Julius Randle back, having a good Brunson game was impressive and important for this Knicks team. But I do think that if Jimmy is healthy and playing well with this level of execution and defense and coaching and shooting from the heat, they really might go out there and steal this thing. But we just don't know exactly what Jimmy's situation is right now. No, we don't. And I do think Josh Hart deserves an immense amount of credit for this game too. And 
Like I said, I think that's the biggest thing moving forward, Carson, what the Knicks can do on the glass. If the Knicks dramatically out-rebound this team and get extra possessions like they've been doing all season long, all playoffs long, I think they can pull this thing out. Uh, big credit to Isaiah Hardenstein, too. Mitchell Robinson gets in foul trouble early in this game. Hardenstein also, ironically, gets in foul trouble later in this game. But he had nine boards, and his stretch out there was doing a lot of work. There were a few offensive boards that he doesn't corral uh, that disappointed me, too. But, I, again, I think the rebounding battle uh, is really massive. They out-rebound Miami by 16 in this game. That's 50-34. to 34. That's the only edge, I think, at this point that I really give New York over Miami. You know, I mean, I think they have more creators straight up, but I don't know if that matters offensively with how Miami, what Miami's been doing with the pick and roll. I think the only way that New York wins this series at this point is if they are, they got to out-effort Miami, man, and that's a hard fucking task because this is a Miami team. That's their identity. That's the Heat culture, dude. That is, mm-hmm. we are going to outwork you. We are going to out-hustle you. We are going to out-effort you. And that's where I think the Knicks have to win this series and what is going to put them over the top with Jimmy Butler back on the court, on the glass, in consistently winning effort plays. I don't know if they can do it, but I know that they have the they have the personnel that can do it. I don't know if it's going to play out. So are you feeling differently about this series, Carson? I don't know what to say until Jimmy's back. I think that the Knicks are better without Jimmy Butler out there. I do think we saw exactly why in this game. There does come a point where it matters the level of shot creators and shot makers that you have at the top of your roster. And I thought that that was the decider. But if Jimmy comes back in game three with the Heat having stolen one away, I might have to lean towards them. So Jimmy is hurt. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. 
You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash stereo right now. NetSuite.com slash stereo. NetSuite.com slash stereo. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Chris Paul is now hurt and has a groin injury that is apparently going to be reevaluated in a week. And Logan, I'm not sure that the Phoenix Suns are still going to be around in a week. Obviously, beaten in game two by the Nuggets, now down 2-0. What stood out to you from this game? We can start with his injury. Um, I'll lay it out simply. The Suns cannot afford to be without Chris Paul. Uh, It's not like CP is elite anymore, but the Suns' depth is horrendous. And one I want to touch on, something that we hit in the group chat the uh, the other night. Um, (laughs) Dude, Chris Paul really does legitimately have one shot in his bag. Oh, yeah. It's it's gone. It's the fadeaway pull-up from the right elbow. And if that thing's not falling, buddy... You're getting a pretty limited offensive player and offensive scorer, uh, point blank. So it's not like CP is great anymore. CP's good. But the Suns are at such a disadvantage in terms of people on their roster. They cannot be a, they cannot afford to be without a good player right now. The role players aren't good, and they aren't versatile. They go 3 of 19 and 0 of 11 on threes for 6 points, man. You've got campaign and maybe the most busted-ass jump shot I've ever seen. I never want to see campaign take another jumper. You've got Damian Lee, who's really good at missing shots and running around on the court and not playing defense. You've got Ish Wainwright, who's a big body but can't really do anything offensively, isn't really quick-footed, not a great perimeter or interior defender. And then you've got Landry Shamit, who's also good at running around and missing jump shots. So... I guess at this point, you turn or you turn to T.J. Warren and T- Terrence Ross maybe? Hey, Monty, maybe give those guys some minutes. I mean, I think they're better than any of the other guys I listed. Try them at this point. But the starting lineup is going to be D-Book, KD, Aiden, Craig, and Akogi. All of your advantages that we feasibly had against this team are gone. They are gone. They cannot afford to be without Chris Paul. I like the intensity and effort from both of these teams. I thought that was a really big difference that we saw. Man, they came out. It was a dogfight, really physical, guys playing really intense defense. And, you know, I think on the other side of this, Carson, I just think we saw the real true value of Nikola Jokic in game two. I know a lot of people give Jokic credit for his ability to amplify other guys, his playmaking, his elite passing, uh, the way he sees the game. Superstars do what it takes to get the job done, no matter the circumstances. And Jokic did it himself in this game. And I think that's what we should all applaud him for and give him credit for. Um, 39, what was it, 39-16 and what, 6, dude? I, I, don't have the, I don't have the exact numbers right in front of my face right now. But 
Superstars do what it takes to get the job done no matter what. Jokic can on any given night make all of these guys better when everything's flowing, when AG's cutting well, when Jamal's knocking down his shots, when MPJ's knocking down his shots. But when it gets gritty and it gets tough and nobody else is hitting anything, Jokic can also do this because he has elite touch. He is a great shooter. He's so physical and he can bully anybody that goes on him on the low block. And he's a great scorer. And that's something that I don't feel like enough people give him credit for. He can do it from anywhere on the court. Jamal Murray goes 10-8 and eight for th- with 3 of 15 from the field and 0 of 9 from deep. MPJ gives him, us an abysmal 5 on 2 of 7 with 0 of 2 from deep. I think that was big. Um, Murray's struggles really kept this offense from getting into the rhythm. I, I think that was the biggest thing. When Murray's mid-range shot isn't hitting, guys just aren't inherently going to respect him out of that pick and roll. Like, you're going to play drop and you're going to let him shoot because you need to take Jokic away. And so I thought that was big. I thought that was the biggest reason we saw them not really get ever clicking and into a flow. And also, this is just a grimy-ass game, man. It was grimy from the jump. I do want to give a lot of credit, Carson, to KCP. Came up big, came up real big, three massive fourth-quarter threes. Uh, 14-5 of two, he goes uh, lights out from deep, 4 of 4. But shout out Nikola Jokic, man. When the chips are down, when the circumstances are hard, when nobody else on your team is really pulling their weight like they need to, there's no excuses. And Nikola Jokic didn't give us a reason to have an excuse for him tonight. He did his thing. And Jokic might be, I'm still at a crossroads, man. Jokic still might be the best player alive. Uh, I think it's between him and Steph, but Jokic certainly gave his case tonight, man. When nothing else was going right, Nikola Jokic was doing his thing, and he was on ball. I love how you put it, because this was the most labored that I can remember seeing the Nuggets offense in a while, with an engaged Jokic at least. Like, this is the most well-oiled machine in the league. They generally just hum. They have shooting everywhere. They have complimentary athletes, but this is the kind of game It's like what we saw from Steph in Game 7. When the guys around you aren't making shots, you just exert your will on the game and you do best player in the world kind of stuff. And that's what we saw from Jokic, who is unequivocally one of the best playoff scorers we have ever seen and to me legitimately unstoppable there, Logan, because you can't take it away. The versatility that we see every game He's the best post scorer in the league to me. I think when you take a 285-pound frame, his tremendous footwork, the ability to spin out and maintain control, the ability to bully guys, and then just put up an incredible touch shot if it's his hook, the ability to just kill you with the fadeaways. Like, he can score from the interior in every conceivable way. Good cutter. And all he's got to do is get 10 feet away from the bucket, and that floater is going to be a 60% shot as a short roller. We see it over and over and over again. He's the best tip-in scorer in terms of touch who I've ever seen. Like, he just corrals those boards and it's right back up and in before you can do anything about it. He's the best touch-scoring big man ever, I think, without a doubt. And this was a signature game from him, but we have consistently seen him elevate his game, particularly as a scorer in the playoffs, which is why I am so baffled by the narratives that develop about this guy. And I really think they have to come from people who are not watching basketball, which is so ironic because the counter to anybody who makes a pro Jokic take is that you're some sort of stat obsessive. 
Logan, I don't know if you've ever heard me mention VORP or BPM or his defensive rating in any Jokic argument. I certainly haven't because all those metrics suck. But you don't need them to argue the greatness of a basketball player when it is evident right in front of you every single game. He's currently the highest scoring center per game to play at least 50 playoff games in NBA history, Logan. Now, that is a bit unfair because he's still in his prime. But if you go through their age 28 seasons, he's just behind Wilt, Kareem, and Shaq. And that's as a score. That's his secondary skill set. But we have seen a couple of masterpieces there. And year by year, in 2019, he upped his scoring by five points per game in the playoffs versus the regular season. The next year, it was four and a half. The next year, it was 3.4. The next year, it was 3.9. The next year, it was 3.2. We have always seen him as a jump shooter excel. He's 40% from deep in his playoff career. So the pick and pop becomes unguardable for him on top of all the interior dominance and I think he's a better playoff scorer than Joel Embiid, Logan. I think that because of his advantage as an actual shot maker, because of his ability to dominate without a reliance on getting to the line, like, we have consistently seen Embiid's jump shooting fall apart. We have also consistently seen Embiid rattled by doubles, which of course is going to hurt his ability to score efficiently. But guess what? It's all interrelated because you can't double Jokic. He's going to destroy you. Playoff careers, Jokic, 26.6 points per game, almost 57% effective field goal percentage, and Bede under 24 points per game, under 50% effective field goal percentage. And I don't want to make this an Embiid thing. I just think that's a remarkable thing to say when you are comparing him to the MVP of the league this year, whose dominant trait obviously is his ability to score. And for Jokic, this is his secondary ability. And yet I still think that when it comes to playoff basketball, the most meaningful situations that there are, he is better and he has proven himself to be better time and again. I think he's the greatest offensive center ever. And I've been saying this for three years in terms of peak, and he has gotten better since his first MVP season. But there is nobody who has had this Ability to dominate offensively in every single respect, Logan. Unstoppable post score, elite roll pick and roll roll man as a scorer. Runs inverted pick and roll and can abuse mismatches and score at a high level there. He was like an 80th percentile pick and roll ball handler this year, I believe. Like just inconceivable stuff, right? That we've never seen from any big man ever. And then to be the level of jump shooter that he's been. And all the while to be able to make every pass in the books, to me the best passer alive, finds to the weak side corner that no other big man in NBA history could make. And I give the utmost respect to the predecessors, the Bill Waltons, the Arvita Sabonises, but the ability to make these advanced, large, long-range passes with velocity. Like he's just in a different role. The stuff where he is handling the ball out of pick and roll. What he does as a short roller, the touchdown passes. Like, he's just on a different level from anything we've ever seen. And he is a one-man elite offense. Five straight years, the Denver Nuggets have had a top-five playoff offense. Two of those years, they didn't have Jamal Murray. They trotted out Compazzo and Austin Rivers, and then it was Will Barton and Monte Morris. Guys who are literally fringe rotation NBA players right now. All respect to Monte Morris. He's the best of the bunch. But like, good God, that is ugly. And they still produce at an elite rate 
offensively because you have a guy who can kill you from everywhere as a score in every role and is the best passer alive. And that's just something that no other big man has ever been able to say. Like, with all due respect to Wilt and Kareem and Shaq and their unbelievable dominance individually as scorers, they weren't one-man elite offenses in that same way. They had glaring flaws. If it was the reliance on a great perimeter creator just for the closing stretch for Wilt and Shaq, the glaring deficiencies as free throw shooters, Jokic does everything offensively at an elite level, Logan. And I just don't think people wrap their heads around that and how truly insane it is enough. Like the gap between him and Embiid offensively is huge. It's huge. We've seen Embiid regress every single time in the playoffs because his shot making has left him and oftentimes because he's struggled handling double teams. And of course he's gotten better, but this year through three games, two of them it was the same story. And Jokic is infallible. He's inevitable. And by the way, has defended capably in this series, which I was concerned about the Suns pick and roll game. We have seen them counter it effectively. And I think a lot of the credit there goes to the supporting pieces here. The ability of these guys trailing out of pick and roll to contest those mid-range jumpers. Aaron Gordon, I thought, was awesome on KD. But Jokic has done a solid job of cutting off angles, of at the very least getting a hand up and then recovering to the roll, man, doing what he can to affect these guys. And they just haven't been torched at all in that respect. So he absolutely makes a case for best player alive. And everybody hops on the Steph wagon, which is totally understandable because he's a top 10 player of all time and he is better than he has ever been right now. But if there's anybody who's going to make a push in this playoff run, I think it's going to be Nikola Jokic. I think those two are going to be the ones. And of course, Giannis can still be in this conversation. But as offensive players, those two are in a different tier from anybody else alive. KD is there, but there's just a different element of complete offensive engine that Jokic and Steph have that he doesn't. Man, buddy, I don't know about the listeners right now. I'm about ready to run through a wall, man. They got me all <laughs> jacked up. I'm fired up off that, my man. Um, I do want on the record. Carson, you've been saying this was one of the first YouTube videos we ever made uh, at Nerd Sesh. Nikola, why Nikola Jokic is the greatest offensive center. I mean, I just want to give you some credit, too. Carson's been on the Jokic wave since... I mean, what, his first MVP? He hadn't even won an MVP at that point, right? Correct. Exactly. Well, also, not to toot my own horn, this actually was a bad take, but I picked him to win MVP the year before he won MVP. (laughs) I forgot about that, man. You're exactly right. Try for two months, and so it wasn't a great pick. But, I mean, it was the postseason run before that where he was unbelievable. And I just want to put into context about what a great game. We just saw, I mean, an all-time legendary game that we just saw from Nikola Jokic. Carson, in NBA history, there have only been 19-39-16-5 games in the playoffs. You limit that to how efficient uh, Jokic was in this game, uh, 61.4 true shooting percentage. That list is shrunk to just nine games in NBA history. That's a list with... Jokic, Wilt Chamberlain, Cliff Hagen, Elgin Baylor, Luka Doncic, Brad Doherty, Kevin Durant, nerd sesh favorite, Neil Johnston, and Kevin Durant once more. I mean, an all-time legendary performance. And again, I can't accentuate enough to how grimy of a game this was to put up those gaudy numbers when the Suns are playing really, really hard and really good defense 
and nothing is going right, and none of your other guys are pulling their weight. Uh, for Jokic to do this in a spot, I mean, it is truly, uh, in my opinion, one of a, it's a defining, defining, legendary all-time performance. And for Jokic, I mean, <laughs> that's why I think people take him for granted, Carson. It's because it feels like Jokic does this every every night, man. Um, yeah, I, I, one of the greatest, one of the greatest individual games I've ever seen, especially because of the circumstances. And look, I just talked for I don't know how many minutes about Jokic because honestly, the series has gotten a bit less interesting outside of how brilliant he was. Like, the Nuggets are better. It's not just that Jokic is the best player in the series. They're three through six are running circles around the Suns three through six, especially with no Chris Paul. And I gave the respect to Book and Katie as these brilliant, brilliant shot makers to where I picked Denver to win in seven before this. And listen, I thought that the Suns were going to go to the finals before the playoffs started, but this roster is too deficient in too many other ways. Aiton's still not playing at a high enough level, and you mentioned it. I mean, just the supporting shooting is non-existent. There's not a like real quality, consistent impact role player on this entire team. Whereas Denver is just this beautiful symbiotic machine. So I think... If we got a Denver-LA Conference Finals, that would be the two best teams in the conference, in my opinion. So I think the Suns are unfortunately done for, and you can give a little bit of KD accountability here because he wasn't good down the stretch, 2 of 7 in the last 8 minutes, but I think you give a lot of credit to Aaron Gordon for that. Like, KD could not get an angle on him, and then you think, well, KD is the most unstoppable pure shot maker ever just because of his pure shooting ability at his height with his handle, but... Gordon contested him really well. He blocked that shot in the fourth quarter where Bruce Brown was on KD. Gordon came over to help. And so KD just didn't have a lot of clean looks. And that's what Mike Malone said after game one and pretty much what you said after our episode recapping that game one, Logan, which is that tough twos are not going to beat the Denver Nuggets. And that is all the Phoenix Suns have. They have tough twos. They don't have downhill rim pressure consistently. They don't have elite catch and shooting from beyond the arc. They don't even show elite pull-up shooting from beyond the arc because KD and Book want to get to the mid-range so much. And CP was the exact same way without CP. I mean, what combination do they even go with? Like, legitimately, is it going to be Okogie and Craig with Aiden? Because now you just make it easier to send more backline help behind Jokic playing out of his drop, out of pick and roll. It's easier to trap pick and roll if you want. I mean, you have the world at your fingertips if there is that kind of lack of offensive skill in the front court and in the supporting cast alongside Book and KD. Let's talk about the most surprising game one outcome, Logan, which was that the Philadelphia Sixers, sans Joel Embiid, got a big win over the Boston Celtics, James Harden with the 45-piece. What was your takeaway from this? First, I didn't know James Harden still had that in him. And I want to start by giving him credit. You know, he was more aggressive. Um, he was great operating out of the pick and roll. I mean, absolutely fantastic. And I want to give a lot of credit to Paul Reed, too, for some great screens, being a real contributor to this offense without Joel Embiid. Um, and his difficult, tough shot making is always impressive. The space that he can create from... Just nothing. That step back is insane. I mean, they flashed a graphic, I think, Carson, on the 
uh, broadcast. I mean, he's made like over some period, he's made a thousand, and the next closest guy is Luca with like six hundred or something. It's crazy. And the versatility of his buckets, I thought, in this game was impressive. Mm-hmm. He backed down Marcus Smart and got a bucket. He shook Jalen Brown and got an easy layup. He was cooking Grant Williams. Not that you know I expected Grant Williams to be a real answer, which I thought was ironic. Was it Greg Anthony on this call, Carson? I who listened was, to I, this game on mute. <laughs> I can't remember. I can't remember who the uh, color guy was for this game, but he goes, "Yeah, in this lineup, you can even switch Grant Williams on James Harden." And then literally, it was like. Grant Williams looked like a baby, like walking to like, I don't like walking to his parent trying to get back to James Harden, waddling over there like a penguin. So yeah, he was cooking Grant Williams. Um, they hunt and they abuse the Al Horford switch down to the wire mm-hmm. when he hit that big shot in Horford's mouth, and it wasn't just Harden. I thought this entire game they were hunting Al Horford uh, defensively in this game, and so yeah, I was impressed with James Harden. But I'm mostly disappointed in the Boston Celtics defense. I think this is flat-out embarrassing for Boston. This is not superstar James Harden. Let's get that out there on the table right now. He hasn't had a 45-piece in basically three years. His last was in 2020. That's two teams ago, for those who are counting, when he was in Houston. He hasn't attempted 30 field goals in a game in two years. Last was in 2021, one team ago when he was in Brooklyn. This season, as we, as Carson and I have so eloquently told you on this podcast many, many times, he has had a career low in frequency of at-rim attempts. Only 25% of his shots came from within four feet. Physically and aggressively, he's been a different James Harden. Only 6.2 free throw attempts per game. That's his lowest since 2012 when he was a sixth man. Look, the Nets defended him well, too. We saw a formula that worked against him, with Embiid or without. They limited him to 17 a night on an abysmal 48 true shooting percentage. We saw basically in that entire series one good quarter of James Harden, and that was because his three ball was on. To me, Marcus Smart and Derek White, two supposed all-defense caliber guards, not giving enough consistent effort, not playing hard enough, not being physical enough on James Harden. I mean, get up on the guy and force him to go where you want. Close out hard and contest a shot. I want you up in his beard with the bugs that are up in there, man. And dear Lord, if you're Boston, (laughs) try to limit Al Horford switching onto the perimeter as much as possible. I think that's a big thing too, man. But we gave so much credit to Boston before this series. We've given so much credit to Boston throughout this year. You've got so many rangy defenders, so many guys to throw with these versatile offensive weapons, especially Derek White and Marcus Smart. You got lit up by old James Harden. This is not superstar Harden, and I know a lot of Harden fanboys want to hop on it, especially after Harden came out and said, oh, I'm still the same Mm -hmm. old me. I'm still, I can still do this. No, you can't, James. I got a year of tape on you that says otherwise, buddy. Sorry. So I know the Harden fans are going to try to come out in droves and say, oh, he's back. He's back. (laughs) No. The Boston Celtics got lit up by old James Harden and Joel Embiid didn't play. That's why this is such a bad loss. I just think this is a nasty, nasty stain on Boston's defense than James Harden completely turning back the clock. It was an awesome Harden game because the pure shot making was so impressive. I mean, he did get downhill more than we've seen, but he had eight buckets, 16 points in this game from eight feet to the three-point line. The area that he has neglected for like the entirety of 
the last decade, basically. And I thought he was awesome going to his mid-range step backs. He just took what was available to him, and it was really impressive. And after shooting 9 of 34 on twos against Brooklyn, and we talked about his struggles getting downhill there, the effect that the defensive personnel, their length, their help from Nick Claxton had against him. They shut him down on the interior. And this wasn't a massive interior game for him, but it was a really good inside the arc game on top of that lethal pull-up shooting from deep. But I do have to wonder, was there at any point talk of an adjustment from the Boston Celtics? Like, I understand you switch everything. They always switch everything. They probably have the most switchable defense in the NBA, but there comes a point where when Harden is just getting the looks that he wants against your bigs, even if it's step backs, your bigs can't contest the step backs as well because they have to play a bit further off. He's just got that bit more room to create it. Do you stop switching? Do you trap him to get the ball out of his hands? I mean, there was a time when the entire league was trapping James Harden because he played with Russell Westbrook. Like, I just think the fact that they allowed him to keep doing his thing was perplexing. It's not sustainable for him to get 45, but you can't just let him do it. Like, I'm sorry. I know it's a step back on the last shot, and it's contested fine. But you just let Harden dictate the last possession of this game when he is the one who has killed you over and over again? And I agree. I thought that Derek White's been phenomenal defensively overall. I thought that just for the Celtics in totality, this was not a good defensive game. This was not a game in which they were motivated enough. And it's like the same old story for them, dude, because it's obviously the Harden disaster, but their execution late. And this one wasn't like the prototypical, oh my God, bad decision after bad decision, although they were a couple. Obviously, Malcolm Brogdon throwing the ball to Tyrese Maxey is one for the books. And there was a possession a couple minutes before that where Tatum again has just no understanding of handling a trap and basically throws a ball against Harden's hand and it bounces right back to him, but then he takes a really rough three. And they end up in that final stretch, one of seven from the field. Tatum gets the line that one time and they have two turnovers. So you put yourself in a position where although they were humming offensively for so much of this game, they made 17 of their first 20 shots. It felt like Tatum was getting what he wanted. Brogdon was great in this first half. Jalen, for the most part, was getting what he wanted. But you put yourself in a position where you defend poorly, that you miss a couple shots, you have bad execution on a couple clutch plays, and you lose. And it's just such a repeated Achilles heel for this Celtics team that I grow less and less confident in them as the front runner by the day. They are the most talented team. There's no question about that. But I don't know if I would confidently pick them over the Lakers or Denver right now. Like, the talent gap is being closed by the execution gap, by the consistency gap. And that continues to really scare me. But I do also want to give a shout-out to Paul Reed and DeAnthony Melton because... First of all, those are a couple of nerd sesh favorites. I'll give you most of the credit for Paul Reed. I'll give myself most of the credit for DeAnthony Melton, but we've been talking about those guys for years. Reed has been awesome on the glass with his effort. Melton, this was a big-time shooting game from him, and of course is always going to give effort defensively and had a couple of impact plays there. But this is not a game that the Sixers should have been able to win. Like, especially not given that the Celtics played well offensively, shot the ball well, had great Tatum for so much of it. If they just played up to their potential defensively, 
if they played up to their potential, period, this would have been a Celtics win. And now, well, Embiid's not going to play, it looks like, in game two. So I still think they're going to get away with this because the opposing team's best player and the MVP of the league is injured. But I don't know how many more times they can get away with this. Yeah, 100%, dude. And I, I think you said something big in there. Uh, yeah, it's not sustainable. James Harden is not going to do this night after night. I, you know, we said that in a pod clip uh, a while back. Um, it doesn't need to be. They did everything they needed to be. He bought another game for Joel Embiid. He won a game on the road that's big time. And like you said too, dude, typical Boston Celtics, and I just continue to be disappointed. 16 Celtics turnovers, once again, same old story. Thank you, Boston, for being careless with the basketball. And typical bad Boston execution late. I don't know. I do know, actually. Last time my heart sunk like that because I love Malcolm Brogdon. I am a big UVA fan. I love seeing any UVA guy in the league. The last time my heart sunk like that was watching the UMBC-UVA loss. It crushed my soul. I'm not a big Philly fan, and I love my UVA guys. And watching Malcolm Brogdon, the consummate right decision maker, Mm -hmm. the does the right thing anytime. One, not put up a floater with the shot clock going down, but to be passive and to kick it right to Maxie, I I had to look away. I just went, oh my gosh, I cannot believe he did that. And another thing on a broader scale that frustrates me about Boston in this late execution, one, yeah, it just makes me mad that it seems like it's a, I don't know, man, is it something you guys are drinking during the game? Is it something in the air that just makes Boston execute bad lately? It's really consistent. The other thing is that, I know we've been very critical of Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, especially Jason Tatum in terms of late-game execution. And I know that I want Jason Tatum to make the right decision. In that moment right there, in a tight ball game, shot clock coming down, Tatum, I don't want you to kick that ball. I want you to say, I am the best player on this floor. I am the best difficult shot maker. Tatum, if you miss that shot, okay, we get back on defense. I need you in that moment to say, I'm the best player on this team. I'm the best player on this court. I'm going to go put up a shot as the shot clock is going down. It, I don't know, man. I need somebody to say, I'm going to take over and I'm going to put up this ball. They, they look like none, nobody wanted the rock. And I'm not saying Tatum made a bad decision because I thought Brogdon should have just taken the catch-and-shoot three and live and die with it, see what happens, or attack the closeout like he did and put up a floater. Not that Tatum made the bad decision, but I want somebody to say, I'm big dog. I'm not letting this happen again. I'm closing out this game. And, uh, yeah, it's the same old story for Boston. It's the same old Celtics, and I'm tired of seeing it. It's one of the most talented teams of this century, legitimately. This guard core with these wings, with pretty good bigs overall. If they don't win the title after what let them down last year, it's going to be really, really, really disappointing and is going to have to cause a hard look in the mirror. And, yeah, your two best players are still young in the scope of things, and so they have room to grow. But you're this talented now. You're this good now. So go out there and actually play up to your potential for an entire playoff run, for God's sakes. On that note, Logan, we'll wrap this puppy up. So hope you guys enjoyed. As always, appreciate you listening. If you're listening to audio, Spotify, Apple, you can watch our entire shows now on YouTube, on the Volume YouTube page. That's where we're uploading them. And in case you haven't listened to the last few shows, I'll still do the announcement. We are with the Volume now, Colin Coward's podcasting company, 
home to voices such as Draymond Green, Richard Sherman, Colin Cowherd, Jason Timpf, and Logan Camden. So <laughs> go ahead, subscribe to the volume, follow them across all channels if you haven't already, and follow us. TikTok is at Nerd Sesh. That's where we're most prolific. Instagram is the same handle. You can catch clips from the pod, graphics that we make there, and Twitter is at Nerd underscore Sesh. So appreciate you guys. As always, I've been Carson Brabber. I have been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sash. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. You deserve to treat yourself. So turn your tax refund into a U-fund and give yourself a Straight Talk Wireless Extended Silver Unlimited plan and get a new Samsung Galaxy A14 on them. You can get a great everyday value on wireless with Straight Talk's Unlimited plan starting at $25 a line per month for four lines. You'll save so much, you'll be enjoying that refund all year long. It's the refund that keeps on refunding. Find Straight Talk at straighttalk.com or at your local Walmart store. Taxes and fees not included. Offer valid through 41424 while supplies last. Online only. Must purchase a Straight Talk Extended Silver Unlimited plan to qualify. Limit of five phones per customer. Family plan discount with four lines all on the Silver Unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.